Would you like me to start? I don't mind. Okay, so I'm going to start in three, two, one. Welcome to Points of Information, the Debaters Association of Victoria's podcast. This is the second episode of 2020, and we are all doing it from isolation across Victoria. My name's Jonathan. I'm the president of the Debaters Association. Uh, We have three other presenters today, and I'm going to get you to get them to introduce themselves, starting with Alexander. Are you there? Yes, I am here. All president accounted for. Brilliant. That's the media and publications officer of the DAV. Do we have Elmira? Hello. It's Elmira. Hi. How are you going? Are you the DAV secretary? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think you so. You certainly are, I know that. And we also have Joel Cripps. Hi, Hi Joel. I'm just an adjudicator. Oh, that's lovely. Um, you're not not a mere adjudicator. You've all appeared on the podcast before, so that's the introduction done. And it's weird doing this in isolation, I have to say, but we are going to move on to talk about the recap of the interrupted round one of the school's competition before we all unfortunately had to go in isolation and debate stopped. So today we're going to talk about the four topics that we had in the schools comp for round one, and then we'll talk about a few other things before finishing up. Do you a- want to start at A grade or D grade? Like start at we'll bottom start up at or top a grade. Down? I think we'll start at A grade. I have something to say about A grade. Okay, I've got <laughs> something to say too. I spent so long talking about the resource guide in the last episode. We can't yeah. not talk about it. <laughs> okay, so. Our A-grade topic was that we regret the rise of streaming platforms and two examples that were given were Netflix and Disney+. Plus. My impressions of this debate, having seen it a couple of times, is that I was very impressed with students' knowledge of streaming and streaming platforms, and I thought the knowledge of that was very good. But I was kind of less impressed with the way that the regret aspect of the topic was tackled. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit later in more detail, but I'll give you my interpretation of what this particular topic, um, how this particular topic should have taken the concept of regret. So the idea of regret isn't kind of an emotional idea that like we should feel sad about it or something like that. It's much more about comparing the current world in which streaming platforms have become very prominent with an alternative situation where streaming platforms haven't hadn't become so prominent. We can sometimes call this like the counterfactual, the alternative that we're comparing our present situation with. So when we say we regret something happening, we're kind of comparing the world in which it did happen with a world in which it didn't happen. And so that, I think, should have focused the way that the teams were looking at the topic. So that's my first comment. Anyone else have some comments as well? That's a very high-level comment. The thing that I would say uh, to that is normally whenever I, – I always groan internally, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, um, when I say example this or example that, uh, you, you know, I think it was last year sometime we had the example NAPLAN for standardized testing, mm-hmm. and, and it always throws people because you hear everything to do with the example and nothing outside of the example. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one I felt was really good because students really grasped the fact that there's more to streaming services than the example we provide, and I think part of that is we gave two examples well, you give one example, people focus on that. We gave two, and very quickly in the debates, that turned into three and four. So I didn't see as many people getting strung up on the specifics of Netflix, and I saw a lot more broader arguments around Netflix and Disney+. Plus. And, 
and Tulu and uh, Stan and a lot of other ones as well. So I thought that was – my comment is I thought that was good. That being said, I did think a couple of teams fell into a trap of making the wrong comparison. So the one example that I did find a lot and was a bit of an issue at times was the comparison between the price of Netflix – and the price of a cinema ticket. And a lot of teams tried to make this the main comparison. However, this was a really hard sell for me in particular because I thought the main comparison, the obvious comparison to make, is TV or YouTube if you're separating free streaming from paid streaming rather than the cinema, which people don't go to weekly. I was told we're spending millions of dollars seeing seven movies every week, but that's not the comparison I think I'm most likely to make as an adjudicator or as an average reasonable person. I felt I had a, I I had only saw this debate twice the and I'm trying to remember this properly. In the first debate, I had a te- two teams where the discussion was around the household income, and the second time, so it was sort of like this is how much a household like for a household to go to the cinema it costs you know forty dollars for all the kids and everything. And then the second one was looking at Australians spend this many million on movies or this many million at the cinemas or this many million on DVDs. So one was looking at a household you know, this is how much it costs you. Well, the other was looking at this is how much Australia spends on, which was two very different ways of doing that. And I think that sort of ties into what you were saying as well. It's sort of um, the different ways they were comparing how much something costs. I was about to say something about the kind of content because I think some of the more interesting arguments that came up were saying things like, well, the content on Netflix or similar streaming services is either a lot better or worse than the content you get on free-to-air TV or online or whatever. And I think that was an interesting line of argument. I would have liked to have seen more about why Netflix has a particular type of content. So if you're arguing, for example, that the drama shows that are coming up on Netflix are superior to the ones you might see on free-to-air TV, for example, and certainly like Netflix dramas have become really popular, you would also have to kind of argue, well, why is that the case? Has that happened randomly or does it have some structural reason to do with the way that Netflix is set up or the way that Netflix can source its um, material for broadcast? So often I think you would hear about, well, these shows on Netflix are really popular and comparable shows on free-to-air TV are less popular. And in some ways that's a kind of useful argument towards demonstrating that Netflix or something like that is not to be regretted. But I think there could be more evidence there. There was interesting discussion just about the average person's ability to communicate their own ideas on things like YouTube. Okay, well, uh, JB, uh, the thing I will say is when I was putting together the resource guide for this topic, actually, there was a news article which I was wavering as to whether I should include it or not, and I ended up not including it. Uh, It was a news article that was looking at how Netflix was branching out into different forms of content and how it was starting to get a whole pickup of new subscribers in a new category of content that was, shall we say, a little bit more racy. It was a good article because it highlighted some of these, you know, why is Netflix in a position where it can branch out and spend money in these areas that traditional TV, you know, wouldn't want to put money into, but at the same time also. It wasn't exactly not school-friendly, but it was getting close towards that line, which is kind of a bit difficult. Some of the areas that Netflix is really making ground is also not exactly school-friendly content. 
Yeah, my comment about that is that you have to kind of think about the questions of why Netflix has done that and not necessarily, you know, that the argument is that sometimes there's something inappropriate or that not everybody would like to see on Netflix because I'm sure that happens on all sorts of broadcast services. But if this is especially common on Netflix, you know, one question that the debater should answer is why that's the case. Um, otherwise, it just becomes like you're cherry-picking evidence and not demonstrating a kind of overall trend. And I think in the empirical debate, in particular, it's important to demonstrate that you're not just using isolated examples, but there's underlying reasons for the superiority or problems with Netflix, you know, depending on what side you're arguing. So hopefully, Alexander, you can use some of that however much you want. You, you've also just reminded me, it's like, remember back to the last episode, I don't think any of you were here, but that's what exactly what Tara was talking about, using examples from other services that are a lot more specific. I think the example she used was Crunchyroll. Why does Crunchyroll exist? Because there are people that only want anime or these Japanese uh, TV shows that are, you know, professionally subtitled and then beamed across and for one low monthly fee you can get and or you can eat access to it. And, you know, why does that exist? And because that's a streaming service, I think that's also another aspect of that and another way of looking at that because it's not just Netflix that's uh, innovating in that area. I didn't get to watch this debate, but I think a really interesting thing to talk about, like if, I don't know, for some reason someone debates this twice, would be the idea of all of these social, um, these streaming platforms like coming out and kind of trying to battle each other out at the same time. I don't know, it kind of like indicates the sort of lifestyle choices that people are making and whether or not like these streaming platforms can be sort of linked to a regrettable or not regrettable lifestyle that's now being popularised. I'd say I think that's an interesting thing to discuss and I think it would benefit the debaters in this type of topic to reflect on things like that. But I didn't actually hear those arguments made very much in the debates I saw. So it may be a good suggestion for future debates on similar topics. Okay, moving on to B grade, that we should ban climate change denial. Now, full disclosure, I didn't see this debate, didn't get time to before we uh, all had to lock down. So who did see it and what did you think of it? I saw this debate. I didn't get to see a couple of the other de debates, but I did see this one a few times. Um, I think a recurring thing happened in this debate where the negative team would try to take a really soft line approach to it. They would sort of agree completely that climate change existed and agree completely that people shouldn't be expressing negative views about it and they need to be educated. It just, it kind of seemed like they were all agreeing with the affirmative, but then saying, oh, but no, we can't ban it and not really being able to justify why. I also saw this debate and I think it is a... It's one you have to think about before you start your planning because everyone leaps straight to, well, we're going to talk about carbon dioxide. But that's not really what this debate is about. We've sort of moved past that fact and we want to discuss whether we should be shutting down this viewpoint and why it needs to be shut down, what the practical harm is. Because this is really a very airy topic. It's about, you know, what should people be allowed to say? What should people be allowed to think? You need to take that to what does this lead people to do? It was a bit like what JB was saying with the first topic. You need to establish how and why things happen. If we stop people talking about this, 
what are we going to be leading to in the long term? I think this is a really classic example of it's it's like that smoking example we always use. It says climate change literally in the topic, but it's not about climate change. This is about society and the things we talk about and the things we believe. And, you know, where is that personal freedom of what we're allowed to talk about? It's just like that we should ban smoking. Isn't about smoking. It's about public health and personal freedoms. And this is another example of one of those topics. I think uh, another trap that debaters tend to fall into in topics like this is to make it about practicality. A lot of the lines all that I heard being run were kind of like, it's not really practical for us to ban this denial because how are you going to actually stop people from representing their views on social media, like from the negative team and then from the affirmative team, it was more like and giving this really detailed model of how exactly we were going to ban climate change denial when that wasn't really the point. You don't have to prove that something is possible or not possible um, to make an argument. Moving on to C grade then, that children should be legally required to take care of their parents rather than placing them in aged care. I have a few comments on this one. My comments are largely about the setup of the debate. I think that this debate, it was quite clear that the, the affirmative was supposed to propose an alternative to aged care. I think that there were two issues here. So one thing was that the assumption by the negative team and sometimes by the affirmative team was that there'd be no aged care whatsoever under the affirmative team's model. And I don't know if that's very realistic because there would be some parents who would not have children and, you know, there would be some need for aged care. So the idea was that the aged care system would not completely disappear, I don't think. And I think that there wasn't necessarily a very nuanced consideration of that. The other thing is, well, what does legally, legally being required to take care of the parents actually involve? And I think that this, as an early topic in C-grade deck, sometimes needed to be more thought, particularly in the setup of the debate about what the requirements would actually be and how the quality of care would be maintained. Because I found in this debate, although I think the affirmative team had like the right ideas and saying, well, there's lots of problems with aged care, there's often a kind of cultural or ethical necessity for you know children to owe their parents some kind of responsibility but we sometimes had gaps in what that responsibility actually involved so i think this was a debate where sometimes a bit more precision in the model would actually have been helpful i think that may have just been the debates i saw so i'm interested to hear um, what other people thought so i actually got the pleasure of getting to debate this topic against one of the teams I informally coach at my old school. And what it came out to me was this is a really standard debate. I think we've talked about before on this podcast last year how sometimes it feels like you've got a million different topics, but they can be distilled down to about five or ten different topics. And this is your classic big government who controls everything, versus a smaller government where it's more down to the individual. And I think when you look at this debate, instead of, you know, trying to get into all of the nitty gritty of, you know, who's looking after parents in divorced families, while that's important, I think it's more important to ask, why should this be this way? Because if you can beat them on that and then turn around and say, well, even if you don't agree with whose responsibility this is, we still think it's practically better on this side. You win the entire debate instead of winning just 
one element of it. And that's where we want to be really sure that we're covering everything. Have I given us a reason and have I given us a practical idea behind it? So I really want to acknowledge that this debate was probably quite a difficult topic for some people to address because it is relevant and a lot of us do know or like have relatives that are perhaps at the point where you are considering aged care. And so I wrote the resource guide and what I really wanted was for people to really sit down and kind of think about what makes this an issue you know is is it housing and affordability uh is it that you know too much money is going into this is it that the quality of aged care that is provided by the government um like is it that that's quite bad or quite low or do we have have issues there that can't justify you know that industry being our number one go-to when we're talking about caring for the elderly in our society yeah, I think what Elmira just said was um, very valuable because it demonstrates that you can look at this topic from a lot of different angles so that you can look at it from an economic point of view and you can look at it from a social point of view. You can also look at it extrapolating into the future where many countries have ageing populations and there are all sorts of questions about aged care. And then there's the stuff that Joel mentioned about the level of government intervention. So I think once you get the debate set up properly, it can be debated on many, many different grounds, which I think makes it an interesting topic. Elmira has reminded me of one thing I want to warn all debaters about. Most of us do know a grandparent or a great-grandparent who is heading towards needing aged care. That does not mean you should bring up Hazel Walker, your great-grandmother. That means that you should use that as an experience to give you a starting point, and then you go down a slightly different track and you work out what you learn from that rather than specifically bringing up your great-grandmother or your grandmother because that can get very awkward in debates where then teams want to rebut that point but they don't also want to say that you're a terrible child so you want to take it out of your personal life just take the inspiration from your personal life and write examples that are broader than that yeah i agree with that a lot and also because you want to make sure that when you are in a debate you're framing it in the most effective way possible. And that is always going to be from using the bigger picture and a bigger context than yourself and being too personal. Another thing I'd say, and I'm just adding to Elmira here, and I'm speaking as somebody who has had a parent in aged care, had to make the decision about whether home care was better than aged care or things like that. So if you're a debater watching this debate, you have to remember your adjudicators are in the same position as well. So number one, they're going to have their personal opinions, but number two, they're told to disregard those personal opinions when they make debate. So as adjudicators, we do have to sit there and say, well, we probably have personal Personal recollections that are relevant to this, you know, and often they're very, very close to home. But we also have to discard our own personal views when we adjudicate the debate. So um, that's also another reason why the personal anecdotes aren't necessarily going to have as much impact um, as either kind of principled things you've learned from your personal experience, like Joel said, or things like statistical information or economic information, which hopefully will prove something broader about the extent of aged care beyond what just one or two people can experience themselves. I do wonder though, JB, how many, like as a C-grade topic, we expect this to be year 10s, you know, how many 16-year-olds are making that decision for their, it wouldn't be their parents, it would 
probably be their grandparents and honestly their parents would be making the decision there so i also see it as kind of being a topic that's a bit out of reach uh, to grasp some of i guess the more emotional components of so i think that is true to some extent i think that even though a lot of like all the kids debating this topic were 16 or maybe younger depending what sort of culture you grow up in you will have been brought up with some expectation or picture of what happens to you and your family as your parents age and that that was something that would have been really good to look at I think different cultural expectations are something that should definitely be have factored into this debate. And given that Australia is a multicultural society and there are many very different cultures about how one treats one's parents and the level of respect your parents demand and all of those different sorts of things, I actually think the cultural factor was an interesting thing that I didn't really hear much about in this debate. Uh, lucky last is degrade, that we should limit the number of cars that each household can hold. Similarly to Joel, this is one that I did uh, adjudicate a few times and I also debated it once. Not a team I was coaching, but a team that had a uh, forfeit against them and they showed up and there was no other team, so I ended up debating them to give them the practice. I know things are a bit different now with debates being cancelled or postponed and all that, but for goodness sake, can you please give some notice uh, if you have to forfeit so that we can, you know, sort out alternate teams or come to other arrangements, because sometimes we can get other teams in there to um, allow the debate to go ahead so that we don't have to do this and we don't have to, you know, have disappointed children arriving on the night. But that said, this I was quite happy generally with of the debates I saw with the amount of variety and breadth of arguments that the degrade debaters were coming up with. I'm not sure if you guys saw this debate and what you thought of it. So I did see this debate and I thought this was a really important lesson in the way that we write topics and then expect you to do something because I also did this as a trainer a couple of times with some different schools. The topic is that we should limit the number of cars that each household can own. So you need to tell me what a household is, and how many cars they can own. Please do not leave this up in the air as if it's an unimportant number because there is a massive difference between telling me that each household can have 25 cars or that we're fine for them to have collector's vehicles but we just only let them have one car each otherwise. You need to be really clear with how you are going to change something. The big question is, how are we going to stop the world from burning due to climate change? So you need to come out with a strong, hard line, as Elmira was talking about before, and tell me that you want to take cars off people. Really go for it. Don't shrink away. If you don't change anything, nothing will get better. So you need to take that strong stance and say, we're going to limit everyone to one car per household. We don't care how big your house is. That's what we're going to go with. We know it's going to hurt some people, but overall we think this is a benefit. That gives you a much stronger case than finding 45 different carve-outs for how, you know, oh, if there are three people in the household and two of them are above a certain age, we're going to give you three cars for all of these reasons. Keep it simple this many cars per household done. Yeah, I agree um, with everything that Joel said. I think what was done really well 
was that the actual themes of the debate, like why this would be a debate in the first place, you know, a lot with the environment um, and a lot with like maybe we should invest more in the public transport system and things like that. That that was always consistently brought up by the degraders that I saw. And it's really just making sure that when you are proposing a change or opposing a change that that needs to be significant right? So there's no point to limiting the number of cars per household to three because that doesn't actually make the change that you say it's going to make. So what that limit is needs to be consistent with the outcomes that you are proposing will happen. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with Joel and Elmira. I think the th- main things that troubled me about this debate were really kind of set-up issues, exemptions, the refusal to take a sufficiently hard line, the refusal to kind of reduce the number of cars per household to something that might have a kind of actual effect on emissions and things like climate change. I think that's the most important lesson that the degraders will have learnt from doing this topic. Okay, so we briefly touched on when we were talking about the A-grade topic, regret the rise of streaming services, how we need to be careful making the what are we comparing between the two different teams when we have to, like, do we regret something? What are we comparing that to? We were talking a bit about empirical debate topics. Empirical debate topics, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, and we've talked generally a bit generally about them, a bit, you know, what if, how do you do it from a more conceptual overview. Now that we have an actual topic that has actually been debated, do we want to sort of look at empirical topics through the lens of how has the A-grade teams done it in round one? What did they do well? What did they not do well? And then how can that, how can other grades and other speakers and teams apply that to their speeches? So the first thing to do is definitely to recognise that it's an empirical topic and not what we call a normative topic. And we've covered this again and again, but we just need to emphasise it. If it asks you how we feel about something, it is empirical. If it asks you to do something, it is normative. That we regret the rise of streaming services is asking you about how we feel not to do something. So we can immediately put it into the empirical basket. And that's when we can start setting up tests and what we think we should be measuring this against. So the way I always used to do this with my team was set up a couple of goalposts so that we could try and see how we're going to prove that this is regrettable. If it's had a bad effect on the movie industry, on the economy, and on local movie production, we think this is regrettable overall. And setting up a couple of tests helps you really set out for your adjudicator what you want to do so that when you do it, they can give you the credit for doing it. Whereas when you're not very clear about it, we can get lost and not really sure what you're trying to prove to us at this point in time. Okay, I have something to add to that, which is that I think with empirical topics, if you're saying, well, I think Netflix is bad, I don't like it. There's kind of two ways of arguing this on an empirical level. And one is just to list like program after program on Netflix and say, well, I don't like this one. I think this one is trash. This one is boring. You know, whatever criticisms you might make. And you could list, you know, say in the the course of a speech, like say 20 programs. But that doesn't necessarily prove or demonstrate overall that Netflix is regrettable or undesirable. It's much better when you're talking about assessing something overall, to look at the core principles that 
underlie the phenomenon that you're talking about. So for example, if we say like, well, Netflix is a profit-making exercise as compared to the ABC or the BBC, which are kind of state-owned and don't aim to make a profit. And maybe it's that Netflix that makes a is maybe it's the fact that Netflix is profit making that will make it effective or ineffective. If we think about Netflix as something that you know goes on online as opposed to free to air TV, well, there may be principles there. If we think about the type of people who run Netflix or who decide what programs go on, you know, we might find that there's a lack of diversity in those people and that might have some negative effects on what the programs that go on are. But we also might find that Netflix is highly globalised. All of these are not just about assessing one or two things that Netflix produces. They're about looking at the underlying principles. And if we're going to say, well, if we do an empirical topic like a certain policy has failed, it's useful to point out like little bits of negative information. Like say, if we say we failed our Indigenous people in Australia, we could say, look at this bad example, look at this other bad example. But it's also better to look at the underlying principles and say, well, how does the how do the governments actually treat or regard Indigenous people and does that demonstrate success or failure? So goalposts like Joel discussed are very useful, but I also think one thing that teams miss in empirical debates is that it's not just about accumulating examples, it's about looking at the principles underneath those examples. And I think that's what can really strengthen a team's approach to the argument. Okay, so we're actually going to, in live time, brainstorm for you an empirical topic. Okay, and the topic that we're going to use is that too many people go to university, which was a C-grade topic of 2019. Alrighty, so the first question, we've seen that this is an empirical topic. It's not asking us to change the number of people going to university. It's just, are there too many people or are there not too many people? So we need to ask ourselves what exactly we think the worth of a university degree is and how that is affected by the number of people that are going to it, if it's affected at all. If we think having a degree is inherently worth the same amount, no matter how many people have them, then we don't think too many people are going to university. It's an easy goal and we can say this is why we don't think it matters. An arts degree is still an arts degree. On the other side, we might turn around and go, actually, we think you devalue the degree once everyone has one or everyone almost has one. And so then what we want to do is turn around and say why we think that's occurring. So like JB was saying before, we're setting up that test. Is a university degree worth the same amount? That's the same question on either side of the debate. And then we're going to demonstrate to you why we think this is a trend, how and why we think this is happening. I think that's kind of interesting because a game changer in this debate for me was asking the question of whether or not university's role was actually to get you a job or whether or not it was just to provide people with opportunities to extend themselves academically. Yeah, I think that it's useful to have a knowledge of the historical context of universities for this debate to kind of address that issue is useful for the teams to have a stance on whether universities should have a role beyond job preparation. I think if we regard universities as as chiefly as job preparation centres, then it can often appear as if too many people go to university, Uh, whereas if we regard university as a kind of inherent benefit to people, like it's an exercise of their right to education, then we're tending to veer towards the the negative point of view 
you, which is that if it's an inherent good, you can't have too many people going to universities. Now, to kind of answer or to kind of assess which one of those ways of looking at universities is better is to kind of ask yourself, well, looking at our current context, what do universities seem more to be? Do they seem more like job preparation centres or do they seem more like a general access to education? As a university employee, I mean, I have feelings about that, but it would depend on what side we were allocated as to whether, you know, what line we would push. But we've identified a kind of under underpinning principle idea under this debate, which is really useful for dealing with the empirical side of the debate. So we haven't really talked about examples that we could use to kind of back up that principle, but I think that we could think, for example, about the growth of universities over the past, say, 20 years and the government policies that have facilitated that. We can look, for example, at university courses, you know, for example, media courses, where the number of graduates required for to fill job positions is much lower than the number of graduates there actually are. And there's all sorts of evidence that we could use as well. So I, that's like my point in this preparation is that, number one, this is a principle debate where we can look at principles. But number two, as an empirical debate, we also have to assess the reality. And there are different ways of working out what the reality is by looking at things like policy and looking at things like the statistical numbers about who's at university and who isn't. So I guess a good way to frame any argument that you present under this topic is to make sure that you first let the audience know what you've defined that role of university to be and make sure that you keep linking back to it, no matter what evidence or statistics that you bring up. Yeah, we don't want to forget in our structure for each point, you want teal and the L stands for link and you need to link it to all elements of the topic. So say I'm giving you that reasoning about why a bunch of students always go to university, why we see particularly private schools, most of those students end up in university, regardless of whether they stay there or not. We then need to link that back to, well, we think this is good because we think the role of the university is to understand something about yourself or extend yourself. Or alternatively, you say, we actually think this is bad because we think the role of the university is to be more selective to give some people jobs that are higher up and we think that's their role or we think something else is the role of the university and our evidence that we're talking about here isn't just a separate point I've proved to you nicely it's helping me build this wall that says you should or should not agree with the statement so let's say I'm the first speaker in the debate that too many people go to university in my team split, I'm going to outline strongly what the questions we're asking are and what these goalposts are. So, for example, I might say, we think there are two big questions in this debate. The first is, what is a university for and how do we find the use in them? And secondly, how much do we think they are actually providing society regardless of what their purpose is? And so then my arguments at first speaker might be based around that first question. I'm just showing you that a university is all about extending yourself and that that's why we think it's important lots of people go to university. And then in the second speaker, they will look at the second question and explain to us why there's an inherent value in what universities do, regardless of how many people go or not. 
Then a third speaker. This is a chance to emphasize those questions and keep the debate on your turn. We told you at the start of this debate there were two big questions. What is a university for? What value do they add to our society? I am now going to answer those questions to you through my rebuttal and showing you where their arguments line up with ours. And so if I were debating against Joel, who's basically told us, you know, for those two reasons that there can never be too many people going to university, even if I had framed the role of university to be different to what he has, that does not mean that you cannot step out of the way you framed the debate in order to rebut his points from his like from the speaker's context so for example even if I might have defined the debate to say that oh you know universities are supposed to get you jobs and they're not getting you jobs I can step out of that context and say even if university is to extend people if perhaps the quality of that is lowering due to a b or c and it means that the people that are attending uni aren't actually being extended the way that uni is you know, supposed to be doing that for them, then there can be too many people in uni. Just to finish up, the DIV is moving online for its public speaking and debating activities, and there's already a few that are being organised, and some of them are just about to start. So there's online public speaking, which is particularly important because anybody, any school in Victoria who can film themselves and upload that video to a website will be able to participate in online public speaking. It doesn't matter who or where you are, you can do it if you're a school student. So next time in the podcast, we're going to focus specifically on public speaking. But for more information about public speaking, check the DAV website or speak to your school debating coordinator or get in touch with the DAV office. I think it's nearly worth saying, you know, speak to your school debating coordinator or email them or maybe video chat. Who knows? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I just contact them in some way is um, yes. kind of what I'm getting at. Yeah, so thank you very much for listening to our podcast and I hope you'll participate in the online public speaking and debating when it starts. So, of course, it wouldn't be a podcast without a small little <laughs> reach out to listeners. Of course, you can email us at publications at dav.com.au. If you have any questions about public speaking rather than regular debating, we're doing a public speaking focused episode for the next episode. So please feel free to send that in. That's all.